Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff-side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And welcome back to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Max Barrett. And I'm Amit Bindra. And we are very excited. Today, we are speaking with Jim Dopke, who is a partner at Robinson Stewart Montgomery and Dopke LLC. Jim's practice, we encourage you to check out the firm's website for his full bio, but today's a little different because Jim is not specifically an employment lawyer. He focuses his practice on legal ethics. Jim, welcome. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. You are our first guest whose practice is legal ethics based. Can you tell us a little bit about the work you do generally? Sure. We at the firm focus our practice on all aspects of, of legal ethics and professional responsibility. All partners in the firm have had a background in working at the ARDC and our partner, Mary Robinson, was the administrator of the ARDC. So a large part of our work does focus on defense of ARDC matters, whether they be confidential investigations or cases that have developed into formal prosecutions. We also do consulting work on legal ethics issues, and that's some of the really rewarding part of the business too for me because when I was at ARDC, I was a prosecutor and, you know, the other work is defense lawyering that I do. And, and that is a lot of, that, that that does hold a lot of satisfaction for me. But the the consulting part is, can be sort of creative. You can help a lawyer set up a business that they were looking to set up and maybe navigate whatever professional issues are, are present in setting up that business or help a non-legal business affiliate or relate to a legal business. And that's just, it's a different kind of thing than what I had done before, and I really value it, it for that. We also represent applicants to the bar in gaining admission, principally that involves character and fitness matters, but it doesn't always. There are some matters that we handle that simply involve an out-of-state lawyer seeking to be admitted on motion, and they need to make sure they have the correct qualifications for admission on motion, or someone who is who, who graduated from a foreign law school that is outside the U.S. Can they come to Illinois and take the bar? You know, sometimes those have to be addressed before the Supreme Court in a certain way. So that's another aspect of our work. We also act as expert witnesses in in legal malpractice matters. Generally, it's what it works out to be. But anything where an ethics issue comes up and someone needs an opinion about it, we can analyze the issues and, and give that opinion. That's all super fascinating. You know, this is going to be kind of a basic question for you, but something I've been thinking about. How does the ARDC prosecute a complaint? Can you just walk us through what the process is from like start to finish? Sure. The they they take in what are called requests for investigation from the public, from other lawyers. They can initiate investigations on their own. And they do that at this point via email. That was not always the case. They used not to accept requests for investigations by email. It had to be mailed in or walked in by the person. But now it's it's all principally done by email, and that's basically a consequence of the pandemic. But anyway, they take whatever they get. Uh, at ARDC, and they initiate investigations in the 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 vast majority of of cases in which they get a, a request for investigation or a report of misconduct. They they really have to initiate an investigation. Does the investigation go anywhere be after initiation? Usually, sometimes there are investigations that get closed without seeking the lawyer's response. That would be, for example, if the if a criminal defendant reports that their lawyer has engaged in misconduct, ARDC will often close that 
kind of on the front end without seeking the, the lawyer's response, because the, there are often constitutional issues raised in such reports that need to get hashed out in, in court before ARDC can really make a determination. And so they, they tell the complainant that. But in the vast majority of cases, they do ask the lawyer for a written response to, the, to whatever matters are raised in the request for investigation. And the, once the lawyer submits that, that usually will get submitted to the complainant for their review and they have a chance to reply. Once that phase of the investigation is done, the ARDC has a couple of options and essentially they're binary. They could close the investigation at that on the, on the theory that there's just no clear allegation of professional misconduct or insufficient evidence of professional misconduct, or they can continue the investigation. And if they do that, they can use various investigative methods, including taking what they call a sworn statement of the respondent, which is kind of like a deposition, a bit less formal than that. But it's the the lawyer's opportunity to tell their story under oath and to have the uh, commission attorney ask questions to get kind of deeper into some of the issues. If the ARDC, after doing things like that, determines that there is clear and convincing evidence of misconduct, then the matter is referred to the body called the Inquiry Board. And I said a minute ago that it was the ARDC making that determination. I should be a little bit more precise. It's actually the administrator, who, which is the, the person who oversees the, the day-to-day operations of the, the office, kind of like the CE. That's what Mary used to be, and the current administrator is Jerry Larkin. And they function as the prosecutor. And so if they determine that there is clear and convincing evidence of misconduct, they refer the matter to the inquiry board, which functions kind of like a grand jury in the system. It determines it's a board of volunteers that determines uh, whether there is clear and convincing. Well, it determines whether there should be formal prosecutions based on what they see as the evidence, as reported by the administrator and as discussed in the respondent's responsive materials. This is not an evidentiary phase, but they're making like a grand jury, they make a determination of should this be a case or should it not? And if they vote that a complaint should be filed, then a complaint is filed before the hearing board of the commission. And that's where the trial level proceedings take place. So that's the kind of short of it of how a proceeding is brought. It can go on from there, obviously, either to consent proceedings before the hearing board, which ultimately are submitted to the court, or a contested trial before the hearing board. But that's the the proceedings are brought first in this confidential investigative phase. And then if a, a formal complaint is voted to be filed, they become public before the hearing board. One of the, there's a couple questions that I think they're going to be in tandem here. And I think one of the first ones that a lot of the folks that listen to our show always worry about, you know, I don't even think it's limited to that. I just think attorneys in general is legal malpractice, right? I mean, when people think about lawyers and all the kind of cover your butt or CYA type things we do, it's because we're all deathly afraid of a malpractice claim. Can you talk a little bit about a difference between a malpractice claim brought by a client and, and an inquiry or an investigation by the ARDC? Sure. Uh, uh, a malpractice claim is obviously a, a, a kind of related event, right? It involves an allegation that the lawyer has breached a duty of some kind to the client and has damaged the client thereby. That's not dissimilar from what a lot of people, the complainants in ARDC investigations allege. The, although in a way, an ARDC investigation can cover a, a broader range of, of topics, and they're not necessarily concerned with whether a duty a civil duty was breached. They're concerned with whether the rules of professional conduct were violated. And evidence of 
a, a violation of the rules of professional conduct can be evidence of a breach of duty. And there are some situations in which a, a, a proven allegation of lawyer malpractice can serve as a basis to find or as part of the evidence on, on which to find that the lawyer has violated the rules of professional conduct. So they can kind of go together and supplement one another, but they're fundamentally different. The the, the ARDC in a case called In Re Caravitas was told by the Supreme Court, your function is to see if the lawyer has violated the rules of professional conduct, and that's it. And that sounds kind of like a truism, right? But before that, there was a concept that the ARDC or the administrator could prosecute a lawyer for, say, breach of fiduciary duty, which is a civil concept, right? And it's not part of the rules of professional conduct. And in Caravitas, the court essentially ended that practice. So that with that, the, the categories of legal malpractice and ARDC complaint are even more distinct, at least in my mind. But the malpractice claim, of course, can result first in a, in a claim that's made to an insurance company, which determines whether there is a claim or, or isn't. And it then can result in a, a lawsuit that's being brought by the, the client or former client against the lawyer with financial liability in the balance, right? And that's what's at issue. In an ARDC complaint or request for investigation, the complainant is not necessarily seeking money damages, although many people who complain about, say, a lawyer's fee ask the ARDC, hey, can I have a refund of some of my fee or all of my fee? The ARDC is not really set up to grant that kind of relief or say, yes, you should get this money back or no, you shouldn't. They are there to determine for example, in the fee context, was the fee excessive under Rule 1.5 of the Rules of Professional Conduct? And if so, should the lawyer receive a professional consequence as a result? So it's not really about money damages. Sometimes as a result of commission proceedings, a lawyer will refund a part of a fee or will over money that the lawyer was holding. And, and for example, if they thought there was a reason that they needed to hold it, but the ARDC in their investigation was determining you, know, you really didn't have a reason to withhold that money, it should be turned over. Now, the lawyer can choose to do that. And that can be a factor in the, the administrator's proceedings and determinations. But the essential difference is really that the the malpractice claimant alleges a breach of civil duty for monetary damages and an ARDC matter can involve a consideration of some of those things, but it's really a more, it's, it's, it's a, it, it's a question of was a rule violated and should there be discipline on the lawyer? So I guess to, to stay with that, one of the, one of the terms I hear most frequently names, I guess, when I think of attorney discipline is Himmel. Can you, you know, and, and that a situation might give rise to a Himmel obligation or a Himmel reporting obligation for me, isn't it? Not me necessarily, but some of us. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Sure. This is one of the, the topics I think I've discussed most since I got into the, the legal ethics <laughs> business, both I, I at ARDC. I think discussed it with both of us on a couple of attempts without giving anything away. <laughs> Uh, it, it comes up a lot for a lot of lawyers. And, and you know, it's a it, it was it, the Himmel case was from it was a, a Supreme Court opinion from about 1980. And the it's not as though the concept of reporting other lawyers for misconduct had never arisen before that. But it, the Himmel case brought it into the sharpest focus possible and resulted in the codifying of, of rules about it. But the rule is really not as broad as a lot of lawyers think it is, or as a lot of people think it is. It, it, as codified in Rule 8.3, 
of the rules of professional conduct. The duty is to report another lawyer's conduct if you have knowledge that that lawyer has engaged in either criminal conduct or dishonest conduct. And that's it. The, the, the rule does not mandate reporting if you have knowledge of some other kind of violation of a rule of professional conduct, like a conflict of interest or an excessive fee or a neglect of a client matter. Those are all things that, if true, could violate the rules of professional conduct. But another lawyer's knowledge of them is not sufficient to trigger the Himmel duty or the reporting duty. It's only if you have knowledge of criminal or dishonest conduct that you must report. Now, the, yeah, go ahead. No, 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 you go ahead. I was going to say the other facet of that that I always wind up addressing in detail is what's knowledge? How do I know if I have knowledge that's sufficient to trigger the duty? And my answer is often along the lines of, well, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's supposed to be an objective test, right? And we know that knowledge is more than a mere suspicion. You don't have to have whatever it is on video, but if you, and if you have more than a, a suspicion that something that was criminal or dishonest occurred, then you must report. But what's more than a mere suspicion? What is knowledge? And that can be very difficult to determine. It, it has to be something that, that is, it, it can be something that is evidenced by some matter that you've received on a case, for example, about the conduct of your opponent. And you can derive inferences from that information about what your opponent did or did not do, and whether that gives rise to the reporting duty. But if you don't have that kind of backed up information, and you just sort of think, well, I think something might have been wrong here, then you may not have the actual reporting duty. If you don't have the reporting duty, reporting is permissive. You may report, but you need not. So it's a it's kind of a maze of, of decisions that, that a lawyer has to make. The principal one that's most difficult is, do I know that that this lawyer has done something that I must report? And, and it, like I said, it's supposed to be an objective test. Would a reasonable lawyer consider that they have this knowledge? But that can wind up being a, a, a a concatenation of a lot of different factors in the lawyer, the potentially reporting lawyer's own mind. And it's a difficult question, but I always want to focus the, the, the advice that I give on this to, to say it's only for those two kinds of conduct that there is mandatory reporting and not other kinds of conduct. So I think, oh, sorry. No, 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 no go on. I'm well, criminal, I think is a little bit easier to understand. Oh, do you, are there, definitions or factors or things that are considered dishonest? Because that seems like it could be pretty broad in how it's interpreted. That's true. The court has not given one specific uh, definition of what can be considered dishonest under our Rule 8.4c of the Rules of Professional Conduct. And over several cases, it has said, we're not doing that. We're not going to give you one specific lockdown definition because we think that's impossible. What they have said in various published cases, and there are references to all of this in the Caravitas case that I mentioned before, what they've said is that something is dishonest and, and at least potentially violative of Rule 8.4c if, if it involves any conduct that was calculated to deceive. The rule itself prohibits conduct involving dishonesty, fraud, deceit, or misrepresentation, which themselves are different 
kinds or different shades of conduct, right? But the, the anything calculated to deceive is probably the the that's, that's a formulation from the court itself that originated in a case I think called In Re Cutright, and that's the one that I think is the the go to site because it's as broad as I think the court wants it to be. But that, in the Himmel context, that involves the lawyer who may report something trying to determine, do I know that another lawyer has done something that the, the other lawyer calculated to use for deceitful purposes? And that can be difficult because it involves a question of intent. The, the court has gone back and forth, or has, has, I should say, considered the issue of intent in dishonesty cases. The administrator has attempted in certain cases to suggest to the court that there can be um, recklessness that amounts to dishonesty particularly in the context of handling client funds or third-party funds. The court has not approved a view of Rule 8.4c that has embraced that. That is, they have not said, yes, reckless conduct is dishonest conduct, or at least it can be. It, the, what the court has done is said, look, we're not going to formulate one thing that dishonesty or is, is or is not. But if there is intent to deceive, then we're probably going to say there is a violation. And if there is not intent to deceive, we're probably going to say that there isn't. And when I say is or is not in those cases, what I mean is if if intent has been proven clearly and convincingly, then dishonesty can be found. If intent has not been proven clearly or convincingly, then it's not likely that dishonesty will be found. So it turns on, again, some difficult and and hard to evaluate factors like intent but if it can if the intent can be proven and the intent was to deceive then you have dishonesty more big picture and sort of circling back on some of these issues thinking back to the himmel obligations malpractice and, and client complaints you know one of the things wherever i've worked in my career one of the things one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was from the first boss I ever had who said, anything you do, think about how it would look in the cold, hard light of a disciplinary hearing. But, you know, I think all of us live in perpetual fear, especially those of us dealing with consumers and the general public of sort of the frivolous complaint. And, you know, I want to be careful about this because it's like, you know, complaints of criminal misconduct or assault or something. And you don't want a few, you know, you don't want a few bad eggs to, to pollute for everybody because there are a lot of valid complaints and legitimate concerns out there. But can you sort of speak to the attorney concern of, I, I, you know, you have this, this high wire act of we need to advocate zealously for our clients, um, but at the same time manage client behavior and know that sometimes clients want things that would put us in a bad spot and we are ethically bound not to do for them. How do you balance the issue of keeping a client happy? And then, you know, when you have a problem client withdrawing, but there's always this fear of they're going to beef me to the ARDC or there are people who know if I don't give them what they want. I mean, I've gotten that threat before from clients who agreed to a settlement and then suddenly decided, oh, I want more money or this, that or the other. And somebody you believed and you're advocating for has flipped on you. And I've gotten that threat. Well, I'm going to go to the bar association, you know, and luckily I had worked for somebody very detail oriented who taught me the right way to pay, you know, show that we had client consent and everybody had been informed. But it's still that 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 threat sends a chill down your spine. How do you this is sort of a very broad question, but can you talk about that and how to think about that issue and just how do you handle that threat? 
Sure, sure. That is, you know, something that uh, I, has come into even sharper focus for me since I left ARDC. You know, I was I, when I was there, I, I tried to be, you know, a, a alert to the way lawyers thought about that kind of situation and processed it. And, and this came up a lot because, you know, they have the ethics inquiry program at ARDC where you can call and ask for not legal advice. They're not allowed to give you legal advice, but you can call and ask for sort of the broad guidelines of what the rules would say about a certain situation and so forth. And I answered a lot of those phone calls when I was there and lawyers would call with that concern in their minds. But it's it's since I left the, and, and I've had clients who who can call me and ask me for you know, actual legal advice that that the whole thing has really crystallized for me. And what I what I what I think is this: it's it's totally understandable to to that fear that you're talking about to be rattled when a client or former client makes a threat like that. But you, when they're your client, your your duties to them are about the 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 methods that you're using, the strategies you're employing, and the informed decisions that they need to make. Your duties are set out in rules 1.2 and 1.4 at, at the very least. And those require that you consult with them, that you consult with them about the relevant limitations on your conduct. That is, if they're wanting you to do something that you can't do, you have to talk to them about that. And you have to tell them why it is you can't do it, what would be wrong about it, and basically try to get them off of the idea of doing whatever wrong thing it is, at least not using your services. Rule 1.4 requires you to, like I said, give them the information they need in order to make informed decisions. And if you have done that, if you look back on a representation and say, no, I did do both of those things, hopefully I can show that I did both of those things in some way. But even if I don't have a, a paper trail or email record that, that shows it exactly, I know that I did those things. Then a threat later that, that I'm going to report you to the ARDC because I'm unhappy with my settlement is, is going to be a less potent threat. And the, the lawyer, it's not that the lawyer should be casual about it if it's made, but the, the lawyer can take some solace even when that threat is made in saying, I lived up to what I was supposed to do under rules 1.2 and 1.4. And if anybody asks, I will be able to say and hopefully demonstrate that I did consult with this person. They really are only complaining because they're upset that they didn't get a dollar more out of the settlement. And I can report that to ARDC, which will then understand what I'm saying. You know, and there's no way to predict exactly how any investigation at ARDC will will be handled. There's no way to to say exactly how each lawyer employed by the commission will will respond to a response from a lawyer like that. But I can tell you based on my experience that they're very familiar with that dynamic in particular. The, the client who settled a case and is now, for whatever reason, thinking that they should have gotten more out of it. Or a client who pled guilty knowingly and, and with all explanations of their rights from their lawyer and from the judge, and who stood up in court and said, yes, I understand, yes, I understand, who now comes to the ARDC and says, I received a sentence that is terrible and I did not understand what was going on. And you know, it's not to say that every single one of those kinds of claims is, is meritless, but it does happen and ARDC has seen it and they know that those kinds of investigations can be closed if the, if the evidence points to what the lawyer is saying is true. That is that they did 
advise the client of what the relevant risks and benefits of the of the situation were and the client made a decision the the lawyer is not held responsible for what a settlement was you know if it was 5000 and the the client thinks it should be 7500 the lawyer's response can be I advised them of what they needed to know. They made a, a decision that was appropriate for them. So I hope that you know, hearing it analyzed that way can help a lawyer if they're in that situation to know and understand. It's not that, first of all, that these proceedings are going to be confidential. Okay, when the client reports something like that, if they follow through on that threat, the, the proceedings are going to be confidential. No one outside the ARDC is going to learn about it unless there's a witness who has to be contacted or something. But that is so that's that's one aspect. Sometimes I talk to lawyers who think any report to ARDC is immediately public, and that's just not true. And that 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 should help, I hope, in in taking out some of that fear factor. But also, you know, the the, the lawyer should be confident in in having done what they did to explain a matter to a client. And if they can say and show that they did that, then ARDC will will take the appropriate steps. It it's funny because it seems like one of these things where, you know, when the case is over, Ahmet likes to remind our audience that one of our the hats we wear is unlicensed therapists sort of helping people navigate a lot of personal problems. You know, and I often think whether in the criminal context when you're sitting in a jail cell or not just, you know, doing whatever and have time to stew or in a civil context when you have to give up the case and it's time to let go of whatever drove you to have a lawyer in the first place, you have a lot of free time on your hands you didn't have before, right? And it's easy for a member of the public who may not do what we do to sort of sit there and start perseverating on a detail and come to the conclusion whether logically or not that somebody has backstabbed you or, you know, you you have buyer's remorse and you're looking for something there. So it's nice it's nice to know that the ARDC contemplates that that outcome. Yes. Yes. Uh, you know, they, they get the, the number of investigations they receive every year has been declining, partly due to the pandemic. But even before that, it was dec- on, on, on some level of decline. It used to be when I was there between 99 and 2013, it almost always in the high 5000s or low 6000s. And now it's down to the three to 4000 range. And again, this is requests for investigation every year, resulting in in confidential investigations being opened. And, and that's a, even at the higher level, that's not a huge number. You know, we have 100,000 lawyers in Illinois, and the, the, but it is a huge number in the sense of, that's a lot of information for the ARDC to process every year. And while again, every case is different, they do see patterns. Right. And they see patterns of people who, for whatever reason, complain about their civil settlements after they've been finalized, sometimes long after they've been finalized. They see people who complain about their guilty pleas long after they've been finalized. And they, they, it's not that that's not their job to deal with that. It is their job to deal with that. But it isn't their job to take every one of those kinds of reports and make it into a case somehow. You know, their job is to look and see, is there clear and convincing evidence of misconduct? And in many cases that result from reports like that, there just isn't. One question I've always wondered is, do judges have obligations under Himmel to make reports to the ARDC or not? Because candidly, as an attorney, that would make life a lot easier (laughs) if we could just pass the buck off to the judge in the matter for them to determine if something was dishonest, for example. So how does that Mm -hmm. work? (laughs) 
Well, that's a great question. The the if you look at the code of judicial conduct, it does not have a specific canon within it that that mirrors the Himmel duty or the Himmel rule. So there's no one thing I can point to in that 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 codifies it. I would say that judges are lawyers, right? And to the extent they are, they they can be bound in some ways. I think uh, by by the rules of pro- professional conduct. Now, not many of them because they don't have clients now, right? But, and and many of the clients are focused, I'm sorry, many of the rules are focused on attorney-client relationships or attorney obligations to clients and things like that. But rule 8.43, I think in theory could be said to to, uh, apply to a a judge in in a sense. Now, there is no case that I'm aware of in which a judge has ever been prosecuted for not reporting something under Rule 8.3. I just don't think that has ever happened. I don't think that will ever happen, and I don't think it should. But And and I don't know even of a, a situation in which a judge was asked informally to you know, be held to account for something like that. But I think in my experience, just, uh, judges do report matters to the ARDC sometimes, and they sometimes reference that they have a duty to do so or feel that they have a duty to do so. And maybe that's a vestige of them having been practicing lawyers at at one point, and they are certainly free to report. I've seen other situations in which judges sort of direct an attorney to report something that's happened. And maybe that's kind of a, a, a an easy way out of the, the the philosophical question of whether the judge has a, a duty themselves to to report it, just say, well, it's the lawyer's duty, let them do it, you know, and either way, it's, it's probably something that's going to get to the, the commission one way or another, if the if that's being pondered in open court, and it is sometimes right, and whether the judge has a duty, I guess I would stop short of saying they have a legal duty to to report, but I think they certainly can. They do feel strongly about situations that happen in front of them. And and whether that results in them reporting or not, I would also say that if the judge does have a duty to, to report, that does not necessarily obviate the lawyer's duties to report as well. Um, so I hear what you're saying, Ahmed, about uh, it would be nice to kind of, you know, get off the hook by thinking, oh, well, the judge will do it. I don't have to. But there's kind of a what if there, you know, what if the judge doesn't do it for whatever reason? And the again, the 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 risk of an actual Himmel prosecution, if a lawyer doesn't report, I think the risk is bound up in really the facts of the Himmel case itself, in which the lawyer Himmel got an advantage from not reporting. You know, he was essentially doing extortion or blackmail or whatever you want to call it but he he was he, he was dealing with a, a a a lawyer who had stolen money from a client and he was agreeing not to report that that doesn't happen all that often i don't think or if it does it doesn't for whatever reason come to the ARDC's attention all that often as a fact pattern and it's of course something that should never happen. But it, the I've had calls from from lawyers who say, well, you know, my my opposing counsel on this one case did something that that was dishonest, and everybody knows it. And a couple other lawyers on the case reported it. I didn't. Am I in trouble? 
And the answer is really no. You know, the, the ARDC is not going to, or the administrator is not going to go looking for the one lawyer out of three that didn't report and why didn't you? And, you know, that, that just, I'm not familiar with a situation like that ever happening, but because it was reported to them and the other lawyer can be a source of information and so forth. It's sometimes the better practice to sign on to a report just in case, you know, just so that you're on record. But what I'm saying is the, the, in theory, the exercise or the fulfillment of a duty to report by someone else doesn't necessarily obviate your own duty, but just look at the circumstances of how the report is, is occurring, you know, and a judge may be reporting it. There may not be an actual need for you to report it in light of that, but I guess my essential advice is be careful about that. Does that make sense? Now that makes perfect sense. Yeah. (laughs) So we've talked a lot about prosecutions, HIMAL obligations, et cetera. What are things attorneys can do best practices to avoid having to talk to you? (laughs) Or maybe part of it is talking to you so they can avoid being prosecuted by the ARDC. Well, sometimes it's talking to to me and my partners. I hope I can say we we are are helpful in 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 our our consulting business in particular. You know, we we do opinion letters that that people ask us for, where they come to us with a question about again either a kind of business that they're undertaking or a certain approach to cases that they have, or or really it can be events in a in a certain case. And you know, how should I handle this given that the client has asked me to do this? What are my obligations? That I I, I hope I can say has been helpful to to a number of lawyers out there but short of that in in your own in your own practice what can you do you can have good and efficient systems that work for you you know there's no one way to do it right and there are all kinds of software solutions out there now practice management software the AI answering services all, all kinds of uh, of different methods of of receiving the information you re- need to receive organizing it so that you can deploy it on behalf of your clients to the best of your ability, but have an efficient system that works for you, you know, is one that is either familiar to you or that you can enhance in new and different ways, but always make sure that you're doing that mindfully and thoughtfully so that you have the right information at your fingertips and you can be able to A, use it for your clients and then B, have it to back yourself up later. And that can be down to memorializing phone calls. It can be down to memorializing that you sent certain documents. And again, there are software packages that can help you track all this so that it's not, you know, reinventing the wheel every time or doing a bunch of admin work that that clogs up your day. But, you know, organization in those aspects can help because then if a, if a client comes back and says to ARDC or threatens to say to ARDC, my lawyer didn't communicate with me, my lawyer didn't send me documents that I needed and so forth, then you can have that information at your fingertips. So that's one one best practice. Another is to to make sure that you supervise your assistants in a way that that helps them to organize the information that that you have. Sometimes, you know, attorneys can feel or be a little siloed, you know, and if especially if if, if they delegate a lot of work to assistants, which is not wrong under the, the rules of professional conduct, that's absolutely fine. As long as you supervise them within the guidelines of Rule 5.3, which again could be a whole other episode. But the the point is make sure that they're following the same systems that you have set up in order to be able to retrieve, use, and ultimately refer to that information 
if needed. Otherwise, I, I think other best practices are just, you know, have, if you don't have a routine way of contacting clients, maybe think about setting that up, you know, that, that, that admits of usefulness in some practices more than others, but a routine method of making sure a client is up to speed on what is happening in their cases can, again, often help to cut down on one of the most common forms of ARDC complaint, which is communication. You know, my lawyer isn't communicating with me. I don't know what I need to know. I, I, I see this all the time. I used to at ARDC. I still do. The complaint comes in and it says, I called my lawyer a million times and they never got back to me or it was really hard to get my lawyer to respond. And that can be, I mean, it used to be even more difficult to respond to that in 1999 when I started in this business, because, you know, some, some lawyers back then didn't even have voicemail, you know, I mean, it was, it was harder for them to establish, no, I did call her back or yes, I did call him back, but now it's a lot easier to maintain that paper trail. So maintain it in an organized way, in an efficient way, and hopefully in a regularized way in order to help uh, foreclose on that line of, of inquiry. And it's time for your favorite part. Yeah. So we like to end our episodes with something positive, a shout out of the week. So it can be a book, a TV show, a pet, a kid, anything you just want to shout out. It's just something positive in the world. Oh my gosh. Let me think about it for a minute. Well, you think Let's... I'll shout out, I'll, I'll do one just to get you started. I'll shout out Justices Kagan, Breyer. Oh my God, my brain is not working. And Justice Sotomayor for their righteous dissents over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I kind of wanted the opposite of a shout out for the other side of some of these decisions. <laughs> we may just have to have an episode where we have people come on and just rant about mm -hmm. how terrible everything is right now. We're going to have mm -hmm. to talk about the Supreme Court, but this is supposed to be a positive section. Exactly. Right, so with right, that, exactly. And, okay. and while Jim is thinking, I'll give you another moment. I'm going to do a plug. We're going to have Jim on again at some point where he's going to answer additional ethical questions. So if you have questions that we didn't cover today, stuff that you're thinking about, just shoot us an email and we'll ask those questions to Jim sometime in the future, probably in the fall. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to shout out this summer because I'm having a great time with my family. This is really a disguised way of shouting out my family because, um, you know, my, my oldest son is home from college after his freshman year and he's working a job and, and having a, a great time with his friends this summer. My daughter is also working and she's going to get her driver's license. She's a rising junior. And my youngest son has been playing travel baseball and hitting the heck out of the ball and, and preparing for his high school career. Cause he's a rising freshman, I guess it's a, if we say that. So, yeah. Uh, and my dog is great too. We're just having a wonderful time as a family and the, 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 the weather's been nice. And, and, you know, it's just been one of those times that when you're starting a family, I think you, you hope for and, and look forward to. I love it. We've had a couple of people shout out the city before too. So this is great. Mm, mm -hmm. Jim, anything to plug before we let you go? Anything you're doing, you got any talks coming up, any initiatives that your firm has, anything you want people to be aware of a band you're in that you want to plug anything? <laughs> Maybe your own I podcast. Done, <laughs> yeah, well, right. I haven't done the band thing in a while, but the I do have my own podcast, which I've let kind of go fallow a little bit over the last couple of months because of all the you know, the, the, everything else I just shouted out to, but I do plan to get back to it and start doing some interviews and have you guys on at some point. And it is called legal ethics now and next. 
So search for that on all the all the platforms except Spotify. I'm not on that one. But other than that, it's out there. I have some episodes where I discuss legal ethics issues in a way that I hope is helpful. I try to make it bite-sized, you know, so that it, it's just a sort of shot and, and we're out. I do have some talks coming up at professional associations that I'm involved in. I'm going to be hosting a, a kind of discussions section at the April conference, which is Association of Professional Responsibility Lawyers, and that's in August. And then also around that same time, I'm going to be participating in a panel discussion at the NOBC, which is the National Organization of Bar Council. So the flip side, which I used to belong to, and that's going to be about Rule 5.5 and the possible loosening of restrictions on on unauthorized practice or multi-jurisdictional practice and what have you. Hot top. And I, I get to participate in a discussion on that. So those are the those are the major things. I actually I have another one that I'm preparing for in February about AI and tech for the ABA construction law session, uh, section rather, and that's going to be in San Juan. So that's um, cool. I could I committed to that one right away when <laughs> I heard that. And I think we're the, the plenary session and then it's like everybody go out to the beach when we're done. So, you know, that should be that should be fun and a really interesting panel, too. I get to be on a panel with some some really interesting lawyers who who practice construction law. So that's always cool for me to learn about something I've never done before. But uh, those are the main things I have going on. Do visit my firm's website, which is rsmdlaw.com. And you can, again, read up on our, our bios, my wonderful partners who are, are so insightful and who I'm so lucky to be practicing with. Check us out there. Well, thank you to Jim Domke for coming on to share his vast legal expertise and you know important experience with the ARDC and in private practice for educating our our lawyer audience. Thank you to everybody at home for listening. Please do check out Jim's firm's website and all the different talks and podcasts that he just plugged. And please subscribe and share. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.